As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. show an hour review of the Champions League quarterfinal second legs. Chelsea looked like they could come back from the dead before Benzema put another one in with his head. Bayern were a bit too poor to reach the final four as Villarreal kept their name in the draw. Liverpool gave a few players a rest as Benfica gave them a tough test and Savage was savage as City didn't play pretty and Atleti got a bit petty. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to break down these games is a man who is too scared of Gucci's lawyers to grab Jack Grealish by the hair. Taylor Rocco, hello. I'm not sure I fully understand that reference, but I am kind of scared to grab Jack Grealish by the hair, even if it's difficult to say. Jack Grealish, Gucci model, got his hair grabbed. Are you scared? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think uh, I did enjoy what he was clearly saying when he leaned in, and he was saying it matter-of-factly, no less, which I'm assuming is why the hair pull then ensued. I believe he was inviting his um, colleague to see him next Tuesday. Uh, I believe he was as well. I believe he was as well. (laughs) (laughs) Also, here is a man who is the podcast equivalent of a Luka Modric outside of the boot pass, Joe Lowry. Hello. Oh, Ryan, if only that was true. I, I can't wait. I know we're getting to that game in just a minute. That pass was absurd. Taylor Graham and I talked about it before we recorded yesterday. It's it's ridiculous. Taylor, I don't know if you got a chance to study the the physics of that yet. I don't know. I know that was on your to-do list. But either way, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Indeed. Rounding out our pack, gents, is a man who, unlike certain Bayern Munich managers, has all the answers. The inventor of cake ball himself, Graham Ruffin. <laughs> cake ball. Yeah, you heard about that then, Ryan. Cake ball, uh, <laughs> ball. yeah. I oh, mean, I, I, I think we could have done with a cake ball in Atleti uh, Man City last night. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Add some more chaos to the mix. So I heard this in our uh, listener questions episode, which came on the feed Wednesday. Listen, if you haven't heard it already, it's a wonderful one. Please do. I didn't quite understand the dynamics of that, though, Graham. Would you care to elaborate? Well, nobody does. That's the point. Uh, (laughs) Just chaos for chaos sakes. Just throw a cake ball in and see what happens. And who doesn't want to see that? I mean, I would suggest at the end of Man City Atleti, or Atleti Man City, as it were, um, maybe the ball wasn't that important anyway. 
<laughs> that's true they would just ignore they wouldn't even notice to be honest yeah <laughs> all right before we get into these games gents i want to uh, ask who dual screened and who does dual screen on champions league nights i think if i'm correct joe is in team one game at a time with me graham i think you like to have at least four games a movie a netflix show <laughs> and a playstation on during games is that right <laughs> yes that, that's right um yeah dual screening is fairly easy i think uh, it I mean, an, anything more than two games, I will accept. You you struggle to keep across more than two games, but two games is easy. Joe, voice of reason, tell them why it's not. I struggle with one gram, not let alone two. <laughs> Holy cow! I uh, I just cannot give a a I cannot give a pair of games the same attention that I want to give. Like I just can't do it. It's too much. I can't keep track of everything. I can't write things down fast enough. I have to pause, a pause and then go back and it's just a whole thing. So I'd rather my, my general approach for some of these Champions League ga- days when there's multiple games on at the same time is I'll watch the first one in real depth at, at normal speed as it's happening. And then I'll watch the second one and I'll, I'll be able then to have a little fast forward and I can skip through some of the stoppages and some of the things like that, which was extraordinarily helpful yesterday for Manchester City and Atletico Madrid oh, yeah. because <laughs> there were plenty of those types of things. They were yeah, I think... I think that's the thing for me because I, I am sort of in, in between the camps. Sometimes I'll dual screen, sometimes it's single screen, but I find that once I get into the dual screening, I get really restless because you start to realize how many stoppages there are and how there's 30 seconds of replays and then there's a 30 second slow mo of a coach standing there looking annoyed. And you could be watching another game happening at the same time. Paramount with the, uh, the dual screen makes that a little bit easier as well, even if the audio was slightly off yesterday. Yeah, I, f- I find generally, Taylor, with dual screen, if I watch two games, I end up uh, having actually watched zero games. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I just can't uh, follow it. Genuinely, I have uh, two pieces of paper open, and then I will take notes with two colors, uh, two different color pens, oh so God. I can kind of like differentiate that way, and that helps me. And it also helps to approach it from like, what are both teams trying to do as a basic setup for like, what's the attacking plan, what's the defensive plan, and then you can sort of touch base throughout the game and see how much that's changed. And then along the way, you're writing down individual moments uh, and individual goals. And most of the time, you can just assume that if Madrid is playing, you can write down Kareem Benzema scores. At some what, <laughs> what I would say the key to it is, is you need to have the two TVs in like the same uh, eye line. So in my office, I have like two TVs that are straight in front of me so I can watch both at the same time. As soon as you start to have, you start to like, I will make it that's when it becomes difficult because you're missing things in between moving between the screens. Have you trained one eye to look at each screen, Graham? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> fairly common for Scottish people to have eyes pointing in a different direction. Graham, Graham's got one eye on one one TV each. Taylor's got one hand taking notes at all times with, with really his yeah. left hand and his right hand involved, scribbling yep. away with both with different colored pens. Ryan, you and I, I think, are just inferior here. Uh, clearly that is the case, Joe, in, in many ways. Certainly I'll speak for myself on that point, Joe. Um, I think we could charge a lot of money to show live streams of both Graham and Taylor watching, um, <laughs> watching games. We should, we should get to that as a business proposition at some point. But in the can, meantime, can say, why don't we talk about the Champions No, because I got more things to say, right? Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say, speaking of being streamed, uh, watching those slow-mo replays of the managers and realizing that they have a camera on them at all time, like, 
I, I, I'm not a big nose picker. I feel like I would get caught doing embarrassing things. I, I, I was wondering how much coaches have to worry about that type of thing as they're coaching. Cause you know, throughout the game, there's like adjustments of pants and like maybe the, the tuck isn't working and you got to retuck. I just feel like there's a cameraman waiting to make me look foolish. You know, I wonder if that's a calculation they have to consider. Do you know who wasn't concerned by that? Yogi Low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just take the high road. Just don't worry about it. That's the uh, that's the advice. Um, Champions League quarterfinal second legs. Let's get to it, gents. Let's start at the Bernabeu. Real Madrid two, Chelsea three. Real Madrid through five four on aggregate, and it was big Karim Benzema, as we say, making a difference once again. Another headed goal for him. European Cup win number fourteen still on for Los Blancos. This one, Joe Lowry, was a pretty darn good game, was it? We were treated to quite a few good games actually on this Tuesday and Wednesday. But um, what what caught your eye here, Joe? Yeah, I thought there were a few interesting things about this one. Maybe the first thing that caught my attention was Thomas Tuchel changed Chelsea's shape to something I've never really seen from Chelsea before. It was at times a 4-4-2 diamond. Other times it was a 4-2. Sometimes it was a back three. And shapes are fluid, right? So I'm not trying to be, uh, not trying to be overly simplistic here, but there were some different rotations. Like at times Ruben Loftus cheek was, playing right wing back, but for the vast majority of the time, he was tucked inside as like a right-sided number eight, and it was just a very asymmetrical attacking approach with Marcos Alonso pushing way up high on the left and sometimes rotating in centrally like we saw for uh, Timo Werner's goal. And other times, it's it's Reese James sitting back very deep, and sometimes he'd get forward too. I think we saw these changes for Thomas Tuchel in large part, or at least, or at least partially, because of how easily Real Madrid carved through Chelsea in the first leg. Let's not forget... After that game, you know, Real Madrid created chances uh, after after carving through Chelsea's press. Like, they moved through Casemiro would get free or Tony Kroos would get free. They, in large part, played in a double pivot in that game. And they overloaded central midfield. In this game, I think that the tweak in shape with Mason Mount really as a number 10 for the vast majority of the time, underneath Timo Werner and Kai Havertz, you have him and then you have Conte and you have Kovacic and you have Ruben Loftus-Cheek and you have, you know, a more solid back line. I think those changes helped shut Real Madrid down a little more. Of course, you still give up two goals in this game if you're Chelsea. So it didn't completely succeed. But I do think that was an appropriate change from Tuchel in really a, a pretty pretty well-played game from Chelsea, I guess. I think Real Madrid shot themselves in the foot a number of times in this one. But as far as who is the better team in this game and in this tie, it was Chelsea for me. And I think they're a little unfortunate not to advance. Graham, do you agree with that? Um, what were your thoughts on the way Chelsea set up here? Bear in mind, Thomas Tuchel did say this one was over before we went into the second leg. <laughs> he did. Um, I think he might have been in a bit of a huff when he made those comments because <laughs> I don't think anyone felt it was truly over given the weaknesses this Real Madrid team have. But I, I totally agree with Joe. I thought this was another one of those matches. We seem to have had a few of these recently on the pod where the team that lost probably produced the, the better performance and certainly had the, the better game plan. I would echo a lot of what Joe said. I thought Chelsea were good at pressing Real Madrid high up the pre, high up the pitch, excuse me. And they were better at moving the ball forward than they had it in, in patterns that didn't just involve putting the ball into space for a winger and a striker, as was the case with Real Madrid with Vinicius uh, and uh, Karim Benzema, who basically they fed him the ball and asked him to do something with it and they got it into space for Vinicius to run it the opposition defence. I'm not sure there was all that much more to to Real Madrid's approach, certainly before the changes they made in the second half. And time and time again, Real Madrid were were pushed and and pulled all over over the place. If they had any sort of shape, Chelsea broke it apart. And I'm pleased that that Joe mentioned uh, Loftus-Cheek because 
that was the most surprising selection Tuchel made for this game. He's not really been a key figure for Chelsea this season, but um, he, as Joe mentions, he was used on the right side and he could come inside and, and, and help out Chelsea when they were up against that three-man Real Madrid midfield. And it was actually something similar to what Real Madrid did in the first leg where they put Fede Valverde on the right side, but with the idea that he would help out in midfield. And that's where Real Madrid maybe got a bit of an edge over Chelsea in the first leg. Mm. Ancelotti used that tactic again here. Valverde was on that right side, but it wasn't as successful. And uh, I think that was largely down to, to Loftus-Cheek kind of just giving... Chelsea a bit more presence, more uh, one more body in, in in the center of the pitch, and yeah, I agree with Joe that Chelsea were unfortunate to go out of out of this tie. Yeah, definitely. So Taylor, your thoughts on this? And the uh, the bodies in the center of Chelsea's field, I thought was impressive as well. Kovacic and Mount, very good, both getting assists. And also, we should talk about Timo Werner, who listeners to this podcast will know I've always admired and thought he's excellent and never <laughs> is offside and always on target. Um, I, I'm glad you didn't include N'Golo Kante in that list of uh, solid uh, midfield performances because mm-hmm. I think he, he was he was fine, but I do think he exemplified a problem that Carlo Ancelotti talked about in the post-match, that Chelsea basically came, came after Madrid, made them uncomfortable, obviously looked like they were going to be able to make it to the next round, but then I do think had some pretty tired legs and did end up uh, getting worn down because looking at the numbers for a moment, they're not wholly dissimilar when it comes to, say, pressures. Uh, Real Madrid total had 230. Chelsea had 260. But then pressures in the attacking third, uh, Chelsea had 89. Real Madrid had 42. So you can see how intent Chelsea were on going at Madrid, uh, making them lose the ball, making them turn the ball over, and making them uncomfortable ultimately. But I think as the game went on, that became a harder proposition. And Madrid, especially in uh, overtime, extra time, uh, found a way to basically have of the the reserves that they needed to then go and pressure Chelsea, and that's where uh, the winning goal. Even though Real Madrid lost, it's a very confusing way to explain this one. But the the uh, the second goal for Madrid, I think, comes from Madrid doing exactly to Chelsea what Chelsea had been doing to Real Madrid for most of the game. Mm. And Joe on on Real Madrid, um, I thought Casemiro wasn't wonderful. Tony Kroos, I don't think, had an amazing game, which explains why Real Madrid lost because that's the of law. Course, of course. Um, what did you think of Real Madrid here? And in general, we've seen generally in the Champions League, it's not always the best team in Europe that tends to win this competition. And when that is the case, it's often Real Madrid that wins the <laughs> yeah, competition. Yes, that's exactly right. I was I was talking about this this upcoming semifinal between Real Madrid and Manchester City earlier today. And I was just thinking about it some and realizing, man, this Madrid team is incredibly flawed. And yet somehow I still wouldn't be surprised if they won this whole thing. I do think City will smack them in the semifinals. And I do think City will go on to play in that final. Beyond that, I don't know what will happen. But still, with the amount of quality that this Real Madrid team has, I think you would be foolish to count them out at any given time. So maybe more on that individual quality in just a second. As far as what I saw from Real Madrid in in more of a team-wide sense, we saw another very fluid outing from Carl Ancelotti, not because, to my eye at least, he's drilled these fluid rotations and patterns into this team, but because he doesn't really care what they do. It seems to me that in possession, their plan is Vinicius Jr. on the left, cutting inside onto his right, combining with Benzema, Benzema doing magical stuff, and then Luka Modric doing even more magical stuff, right? I mean, that that was their attacking game plan in this game. Rodrigo comes on uh, at some point, 78th minute for Casemiro, so they start to go for it a bit more. And of course, he gets a goal playing off the right side. So there's some plan here in the in the in the substitution patterns, but tactically in possession, there's not a whole lot for me to parse through here. It's pretty straightforward. Defensively, though, 
I, I am not sure that Real Madrid, and this is a reason why I don't think they'll make it past City, I'm not sure they can really contain many top teams in Europe right now. They defend in a man-oriented kind of way, a man-oriented, man-marking kind of way, especially in the back. So let's mm. let's paint a picture here. So for Chelsea, they have Kai Havertz and Timo Werner up top. Real Madrid are times playing a back five, but but a lot of the time it was David Alaba and Nacho, who's in for Militao in this game. They would be on those players in a man-to-man kind of way. And so when... Kai Havertz would drop, or when Timo Werner would drop, or when Timo Werner would run into the left channel, it would be the center backs that would follow those players, creating just gigantic gaps in the middle of the field for Chelsea to exploit. And it happened not once, but twice, leading directly to goals. It happened other times as well, but twice leading directly to goals. The first one was Mason Mount's goal in the 15th minute, Chelsea in possession in the attacking half. It's Kovacic to Loftus-Cheek, to Werner, to Mount, who scores right up the gut. Mount runs into the open space, gets on the ball, and scores and then Timo Werner's goal, Alonso rotated centrally, as I mentioned earlier. And it's, it's Timo Werner to Alonso who drops in, draws a defender out, and then plays it to Kovacic, who plays it to Werner in behind. And that's, that's three. I mean, it, it was, it was ridiculous how often it was happening for Real Madrid in this game. And it's not just a single game kind of thing. They do this stuff and, and teams that are well drilled and know how to pull out man to man kind of defenses. Are, are pretty much going to torch them every time. So that was the biggest tactical thing I noticed from Real Madrid, not a positive from them uh, as they head into the, the semifinals against Manchester City. Graham, Luka Modric. No question for you, just Luka Modric. Ah, uh, I mean, Joe's already referenced it, but w- what an incredible pass. Admittedly, I don't have a list of in my head of the best passes ever, but I suspect... It's just Mod- that one. That assist- it's just that pass. <laughs> it's the only one on the list. It's just which one, Taylor? Just Modric, that. that's it. Just it's this, that, yeah. And then, like, it, the list is one name and it's Modric, and then we can leave it alone. <laughs> I suspect that might be the case, because I, w- I was trying to think of a better pass, and someone, I think maybe it was Sid Lowe, tweeted out, okay, send us th- the best passes then and compare them. I I didn't f- see one in, in the threads of responses that was better than, than this one for, for, for Rodrigo. Excuse me, difficult to say that. Um all outside of the boot passes look good, but the way that Modric gets so much height on the ball, I'm not even sure technically how that's how that's possible. And then it drops so quickly onto Rodrigo's foot and it's got a bit of swaz on it. And I don't even think Chelsea centre-backs are in a bad position necessarily. It's just that there's not a lot that, or nothing that they can do a stop uh, to do to stop a pass that good. And for me, it was one of the most memorable memorable moments of the Champions League this season. How many times, Graham, do you think he does that in training? And what's his success rate with that kind of pass? Because it's not, it's not the first time we've seen him hit with the outside of his boot. In fact, his boots are probably more worn on the outside than they are on the inside. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine he's pulling off a pass that good very often. <laughs> Maybe in training he's doing it, I guess, I suppose. Yeah, you have to think so. Uh, Taylor, your general thoughts on Real Madrid and did, did the right team go through here in the end? I think um, Joe suggested that Chelsea were the better team over two legs. Uh, it's tough because I think Madrid just sort of blitzed them in that first leg, but then really seemed like they took Thomas Tuchel at his word and thought Chelsea wouldn't be up for this one. To see them be sort of overpowered for such a long period of time in this game did seem pretty odd and to see how it could have been worse if that Marcus Alonso goal doesn't get chalked off for the handball. I think Ferland Mendy has some questions to answer, and I agree with Joe that I think 
there are going to be defensive issues, especially with who they've drawn in the next round. But I guess as long as you have Luka Modric, you're able to get goals out of nowhere. Because I agree with Graham, everything about that pass is just, it's just so amazing. And there have been very good assists throughout the years. I was joking in my, that being the only one on the list. But it is probably the best one I've ever seen live. And especially so when you see that it's, uh, Rodrigo is making the run and he's kind of calling for it when Modric has already decided to play the ball. I think he before he even receives it, I think he recognizes there's an opportunity there. But the physics and the way he strikes it, I, I don't know if I can even move my leg in that way, let alone move my leg in that way and then also strike a ball perfectly. The spin from the reverse angle from behind Modric's back, it, it's it's just wild to see the bend on that ball, the physics of it, and to know that he did that and meant every single part of it. Uh, no matter how bad Real Madrid play, I guess as long as Luka Modric can do stuff like that and Karim Benzema can score goals, they're in with a chance. Indeed. And Modric will be trying to put balls behind the Man City line at the semi-final mm. stage. Uh, that was Real Madrid against Chelsea. And we come back after this break, we're going to talk about the big shocker of the round, Bayern Munich, yeah. uh, going down to Villarreal. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Bayern Munich 1, Villarreal 1. What's this? Villarreal progressed 2-1 on aggregate. Goodness me, Graham Ruthven. An Emery masterclass here and not quite the competition we would expect it in here. Um, Graham, your thoughts on this one? This is a Villarreal team who probably should have won by even more uh, in the first leg, and it was on a knife yeah. edge. They pulled through with an 88th-minute equaliser in this one. Um, should, should we talk about how small Villarreal as a town is? Because I don't think we've done that enough. <laughs> I mean, you, you kind of have to mention, I guess, when they make the semi-finals of, of the Champions League, uh, was it 50,000 people 50, in, the, in the town of and, yeah, and bear in mind, the town Graham, of Villarreal? This is, this is a team that was relegated a decade ago in 2011-12 as well. It's a small, a smallish team from a small town. It does kind of bear repeating, to be fair. It does. And I think maybe the most impressive thing about Villarreal getting to the semi-final stages, this isn't even the first time they've made it this far in the Champions League. They made it to the semi-finals in 2006 when they, when they played Arsenal. So it's a prolonged period of overachievement that they have had. They consistently, um, compete at the top of Spanish football. They're the reigning Europa League champions, beat Man United in the final last year, of course. So yeah, I, it does bear repeating. In terms of this tie, there's no denying that this was a, a shock. Um, yes, as we say, Villarreal have, have good pedigree as, as a team, but, um, they are seventh in La Liga at the moment. And, and until the, the knockout rounds, I think many people, including, uh, some people on this, on this podcast had, had Bayern Munich down as, as potential winners. And that was, that was a perfectly reasonable opinion to have. They'd been very impressive in the, in the comp- competition up until then. That, that first leg last week, I think, spooked Nagelsmann a little bit. As you say, Ryan, uh, that was a, a dreadful performance. Probably the worst I've seen them play this season and they were fortunate to only be 1-0 down heading into the second leg. And so Nagelsmann made some changes for this game. So they go to a, a back three with Alfonso Davis dropped to the bench. I think he was rushed back slightly last week. It, it felt like he was back a little bit too early having having been sidelined for uh, two or three months. They have uh, the more defensive-minded Lucas Hernandez to play at left the, the left centre-back position. And then they have Coleman and, and Sani as the kind of hybrid wing-back slash wingers. And I think this did result in Bayern being a bit more solid defensively over the 90 minutes. But um, it, it didn't feel like there was much happening for them in, in the final thirds. And it felt like they, they, there was a lack of ideas from them. They did dominate possession. They took up dangerous positions in wide areas. But a lot of their attacking intent seemed to be based around crossing into the middle. And whether it was Sané or, or Coman, they were, they were getting balls into the middle. And the Villarreal pairing of Raul Albiol and Pau Torres were just repelling pretty much everything they had to face. There was a couple of opportunities. I think Musiala has a header um, and uh, really makes a couple saves. So there, there were chances for, for Bayern Munich, but it didn't, it didn't feel like there was much variety to their attack. I thought the one player who was giving them a bit of variety was, was Musiala, who was, who was making late runs into the box and he was, trying to beat his man with a, with a bit of skill. And even when Bayern score the goal, it comes from maybe the one instance of Villarreal getting a bit fragmented in terms of their shape and, and, uh, not finding a pass when playing out from the back. And, uh, taking that moment aside, they were very good with their intricate passing, playing through Bayern Munich. That was maybe the one instance where it fell apart from them and Bayern Munich score. So it's, it comes from a Villarreal mistake. Yes, you could say the high press from Bayern was good, but it's not even as if they managed to play through the low defensive block of Villarreal. So, 
it, it just felt like a limited performance from Bayern Munich, which when you look at their performances over the course of the competition, taking into account the, the group stages and then that second leg against Salzburg as well, is is unlike them. But that's the that's the nature of the Champions League. If you have two underwhelming performances, as they did in this tie, they are they're out. Yeah, Graham. And to emphasize exactly what you're talking about, I looked it up afterwards just to make sure my eyes weren't deceiving me. 34 crosses from Bayern Munich in this game. 18 uh, big switches of play. That's when they hit it over 40 yards from one side to the other. So Bayern Munich really emphasizing getting the ball wide and then getting the ball in, but also didn't really take those chances that cleanly. As you said, Musiala has a header. Thomas Muller has a fairly wide open uh, chance that he fails to put on frame, which is pretty uncharacteristic for him. And it, that stood out to me because in the moments when Bayern were sort of focused on quick combinations or even individual take-ons, it seemed like there was a ton of opportunity there. Kingsley Coman gets one Foyth a yellow card with maybe half an hour to go. I thought for sure he was coming off or he was going to get a red card because it seemed like Bayern had kind of figured it out that if we go at them and make them uncomfortable, try to take them on individually or in 2v1 situations, we can have some luck, we can have some joy. But then they would slow it down and look for the cross into the box. And I know Robert Lewandowski is very good, but I don't think he is so good that you can just sort of aim the ball in there and hope that it's going to come off. Even Real Madrid know that they've got to sort of find different ways to get the ball to Kareem Benzema, and he's going to do interesting things with it or make smart runs with it. So I think Bayern just became predictable, and I think you're right that probably some of that, or at least some of that, comes from the way the first leg went, how open they were, and attempting to sort of limit the defensive side of things while still having the attacking threat. I just don't think that they had the combination right on the evening. Joe, I can buy Bayern Munich getting it wrong on one particular evening uh, in the first leg in Spain in a town with 50,000 people in it, if we haven't mentioned it already. Um, but to do it two weeks running and for Newland Uggs not to have answers the second time around, or not the correct answers at least, that's troubling, isn't it? How many people, Ryan, live in that town? I, I forgot. <laughs> it's between 49,999 and 50,001, I believe. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, not, not great from Bayern Munich. I think I echo a lot of what Taylor and Graham have said. I, I do want to add the caveat that breaking down a low block and Villarreal put out a low block with just sort of a mess of bodies in and around their 18-yard box that is by far the hardest thing to do in soccer. To create chances that are that are really high-quality chances against a team like that is incredibly difficult. We saw Manchester City struggle with it heavily in the first leg against Atletico Madrid, and they struggled with it for parts of the second leg as well yesterday. So we'll talk about that too. This is not an easy thing to do. I, I do think Bayern were a little better with the ball than maybe we've given them credit for so far. I think they had a purpose with a lot of their crosses. They pinned Villarreal so, so deep. And then the wingers would come inside and, and play little in-swinging crosses, or they'd have some really nice, well-weighted out-swinging crosses. It was still too predictable for my taste, though. Not enough movement off the ball, not enough cutbacks trying to get to the byline and, and play some different angled passes into the box. And just in general, too many low-quality shots. Bayern Munich averaged 0.07 xG per shot against Villarreal across both of these legs. Their average this season, according to Opta, had been 0.12, which is... I imagine maybe slightly above average, 0.12, 0.07 is really low. And that's credit to Villarreal, who I think in this game and in this tie were just downright brilliant. I talked about last week how my friendship with Ajax has temporarily ended and Villarreal is my new best friend because they play some incredible soccer. <coughs> they, they mixed heroic defending, like truly heroic defending in this game 
with some ridiculous attacking quality. Yes, Parejo gives the ball away to Kingsley Coleman in central midfield, and that's how Bayern get their one goal, not from breaking down uh, Villarreal, but just from picking up the ball in a transition moment and, and going. But so many times in this game, and we see it on the on the goal that Chukweze scores late in this match to really seal this thing for Villarreal, we see Parejo's quality. We can see all throughout the game Capu's quality. There's so much ability on the ball. No one, no one looks flustered when they're pressed by Bayern Munich, and they were pressed by Bayern Munich. They're completely calm. It looks like they're playing at half speed, but they're not. They're playing really, really quickly on the ball and moving and seeing space very quickly. But because of how efficient and, and just calm they look on the ball, it it looks as though they're moving slowly and like their feet are in molasses. But in reality, they're they are moving. I I cannot say enough good things about Nunai Emery about this Villarreal team. I I really enjoyed watching them. I think they have a very tough game, of course, as you expect in the semifinals of the Champions League against Liverpool coming up. But man, I think they deserve so much credit for for making Bayern Munich's life difficult. It's not like Bayern completely imploded on their own. They were they were prompted in that direction, certainly. Yeah. And and Joe, that, that intricate play in quick transition was the most impressive thing for me over the over the two legs, because let's not uh, forget that they did this in the first of leg. Of course. As well. They the the way that Parejo and Lacelso in particular are able to uh, face that Bayern Munich high pressure and keep their composure and either beat them with a bit of skill as Parejo does for the goal before finding Lacelso. That that goal was the perfect illustration because you have Parejo with the bit of skill to beat the two men pressing him. You then have the pass through to Lacelso. Lacelso, the easier pass, I, th- I think, is maybe out to Chukwesi at that point, but he goes for Moreno through the middle. The easy pass for, or the easy thing to do for Moreno, certainly at that point, is to have a shot on goal, but he recognizes Chukwese at the back post. The finish from Chukwese, I think, is slightly fortunate. I don't think he means to do that shot into the, into the ground that sort of deceives Manuel Neuer, but they, they'd earned that, that, that bit of good fortune through the, the play and involved in that goal. So it was absolutely one of the things, or the most impressive thing about the performance, how they, how they continue to do that. There have been warning signs as well before that goal. So in the first half, Dan Juma gets in behind. He's slightly offside, but it's a, a good intricate passing move before that uh, to create that chance. And then uh, Gerard Moreno strikes a side netting right before half time after, again, after some nice intricate pl- play and transition. So it wasn't like they only did it once. Villarreal did it a number of times over this tie. Taylor, Villarreal, this is an incredible achievement. And we can certainly say that we'll suggest they're overachievers. We know they're very good in Europa League or certainly the manager is. And they're all, it's kind of bizarre because they're like an island of misfit toys from the Premier League as well. And the parts, the components that they're put together with, how do they keep doing this? And how far do you think they can go, Taylor? I mean, I, I think Joe is correct to point out the role that Unai Emery has played in this one. It seems like he is able to get everybody on the same page and functioning within the same system and the same unit. I think it probably comes down to the intensity of their training. I don't think you can be as... Again, Joe said it really well. Like, looking as slow, but then playing as fast as Villarreal do, it means that they've got a ton of control and that they kind of trust their decision-making, but I think it also means that they know where their teammates are going to be, or they're drilled enough to know not to panic, not to just try to force something, but but to hold it for one second, then you play it down the line. He's supposed to make that run into the channel. Okay, he's done that. Now I know where I'm supposed to go, and you can just see the discipline there. And on the, in this game, in the second leg... You saw more of the defensive discipline, certainly, and that's been talked about 
up until the Atleti game, and then I think other things got talked about when it came to uh, discipline and the uh, kind of boil over that can happen there. Mm. But it's worth remembering that in that first first leg, it very much was Villarreal dominant and could have scored more. And I was really worried that they were, this was going to come back to haunt them because I thought they could have won by a few goals. And so uh, it's a credit to them, I think, that they changed up their approach a little bit to be more resolute on the defensive side. And I would say sort of frustrate uh, Bayern Munich into just going for crosses and going for low percentage opportunities and then backing themselves to make something happen. And even when it felt like for a moment there as as Bayern get the goal, Lewandowski gets his goal, and now suddenly maybe the momentum is shifting and there's some individual take-ons. Ah, we've seen this game before. Now here comes the second and maybe the third and it's all over. They weather that storm and then they go right back down and get a goal of their own, courtesy of a substitute. So credit to Unai Emery again for that. Credit to uh, Chakwese for the finish. But I think it's just it's a well-drilled team, as cliche as that might sound. But it's also an underdog team, a team with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. And they know that they are weren't expected to be here and are certainly of the four teams remaining the least heralded team, but probably also the one that a lot of people are going to be pulling for for reasons that Joe already mentioned. I like echoing what Joe said. Oh, who doesn't? Uh, Taylor, it's just occurred to me with the with the stats about crossing and the crossfield passes. Mm-hmm. Have VRL turned Bayern Munich into David Moyes' Manchester United? I was going to say Bayern Munich under Nico Kovac, but yeah, either one is fine. <laughs> Excellent. Good comparisons all the way. Well, um, congratulations to VRL and all of the citizens of that town. Not sure how many there are. Um, <laughs> no one can say. Uh, we just don't know. It's just not out there. Know. Who's to know? Let's move on to Anfield. Liverpool 3, Benfica 3. Goodness me, Liverpool going through 6-4 on aggregate here. Liverpool have reached the semi-final of the European Championship, uh, European Cup slash Champions League for the 12th time, says Opta Joe. No English club has reached the last four more often. They're level with Manchester United there. Good for them. Graham, an interesting one from Liverpool here, who made seven changes to the first leg. A back four of Matik, Canate, uh, Timikas and Gomez, not in that order. Um, is it a risky play? Uh, given, you know, granted they had a relatively comfortable lead from the away game in the first leg, but that many changes in a Champions League quarterfinal seems a lot. Yeah, so a rational mind would say, no, it wasn't a risky play because they have such a comfortable lead and Liverpool have incredible squad depth and so they make that number of changes and you still look at that team and think, well, that's a on an individual talent basis, that is a much better team than, than Benfica have. But yet you you still can't... I looked at that team before kickoff and basically did the clenched teeth emoji, <laughs> um, which kind of summed up, I think, the feeling of a lot of Liverpool fans who... It's a little bit of a risk to play that team in a, in a, in a Champions League quarterfinal. I'm, I'm honestly not sure what to take from this match in isolation because of the number of changes made by, by Klopp and how that warped the, the performance a little bit. So the fact, the fact that he had the freedom to rest Salah, Fabinho, Mane, Van Dyke, Thiago, it highlighted just how comfortable Liverpool were, were in this, this tie. And it, it never really felt like they were at risk of letting this tie slip through their fingers. Even though Benfica scored three goals, just the, the way the scoring goes with Liverpool, uh, you know, taking the lead and Benfica were never ahead on the night. They just kept on equalizing. Um, so it never really felt like they were, they were at risk, but, it it wasn't it wasn't a particularly great performance by Liverpool. I, I thought it was interesting to see Luis Diaz start on the right side. Of course, he's played on the left since joining Liverpool in January, and I, I thought he was probably even though he was on the right, which is maybe an unusual position for him. I thought he was probably their best player 
And I think this is the most impressive thing about Klopp's Liverpool is that he can completely rotate that front line and they still all know their duties and responsibilities. And this was the first time, I think, that Jota, Firmino and Diaz had started in a match together. But you you wouldn't really have, have known uh, in terms of how they were uh, linking up and interchanging. And the running from Diaz, he, he just doesn't stop running um mm. he doesn't he doesn't speak a word of english apparently which I, I think is quite remarkable given how he seems to be on the wave the same wavelength as as everyone and his final product is is all, almost always pretty pretty good he has a, a good couple of chances good shots in in, in this game that force keepers and uh, the keeper into save and i should probably also mention roberto firmino given that he scored twice here and he's fallen down the pecking order a little bit this season but this was a reminder of what he he does so well he's yeah. he's very good at finding space whether that's by dropping deep or getting on the end of crosses and he finished well for his uh for his two goals but then on the negative side of things and i won't labor this point too much because we spoke about it at length on monday and again to reiterate the point i'm 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 not sure how much we can read into this liverpool performance but that high line was slightly problematic for them again in, in yeah, this match yeah. just like against city at the weekend not enough pressure on the ball Matip and Konati weren't as uh, weren't in sync as the centre-backs holding the line and the ease at which Benfica were able to play through midfield in quick, in quick transition and get in behind was, was just far too easy, to be honest. In particular, Benfica's second goal where Grimaldo plays it straight through the middle for, for Yaramchuk to, to round the goalkeeper. It, it, it was just very, very easy. And it's something that we, that Liverpool can't do again this, this weekend in the FA Cup semi-final. That, that high line and certainly pressure on the ball needs to be better and they need to shore things up a little bit there. Uh, two, two notes from what you said there, Graham. Um, firstly on Firmino, where, you know, he managed to find the space. Well, certainly for that, um, the, from the free kick, he found the space because Benfica are terrible at set piece defending, it seems. <laughs> it's certainly the case. But so, but, you know, full credit to Firmino for, for, for getting the job yeah. done there. But, um, you mentioned how Liverpool can interchange their front line, but very comfortably with different personnel. Might it be that they can't quite do the same thing with the back four? Because once, as you say, um, the 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 high line was called out on both goals. I'd say the three two, the three two, and the three three goal certainly. Um, and it just seemed like maybe they weren't in sync with the offside trap very well. This this uh, second string. Yeah, and in particular, Kanati and, and Matip, I think it was the, the disallowed goal. There was a disallowed goal where they, the Benfica got in behind as, as well. It was only about an inch or two in it. And when you look at who's stepping out at what time, Matip and Kanati, they're step, they're stepping out at, at different times. And I guess that just comes down to number of reps as a centre back pairing. And obviously, um, I can't imagine they've started many games together. This may have been the first game they've started together because it tends to be Van Dijk and Kanati or Van Dijk and Matip, not really uh, the two together. But again, it, it was a very comfortable evening for Liverpool because of the way the scoring went. Maybe maybe they tighten up slightly if, if the situation demands it. Maybe they felt they could be a little bit more open. Um, maybe the focus wasn't there. Maybe even a touch of complacency at times. I, I struggle to criticise them too much because I just think when it matters, we're not going to see this sort of performance from them, largely because we're not going to see this this team on the pitch from them. I, I also think, and maybe this ends up being a drawback, but I, I think Liverpool right now are our best shooters going to shoot sort of team in that I don't know if they can change their DNA and change their approach. Commentators talk about it a lot when uh, there's goal kicks taken short and everybody knows that the team is going to take them short. So they step numbers high and you sort of put yourself under pressure. You can have some wayward passes or maybe you turn it over and inevitably you'll get a commentator saying, I understand why they're doing that, but sometimes you just got to kick it long. And I understand why the commentator says that. 
But I also get that if you're Liverpool, that goes against what you're trying to do. You're trying to build out of the back, giving the ball back. Uh, and with your numbers stretched out is the exact opposite of what you want. So you've got to kind of keep with that approach, even if teams have tried to figure it out. And then you've got to try to figure out what they figured out. And with this Liverpool team, even a weekend as they were, I loved that they, they go one nil up. And just before that header, you can see Jordan Henderson saying to everyone, slow it down. Like we don't need to be rushing. We don't need to be hustling everywhere. And then they score the goal. And, and with, I think one minute left in the, at the end of the first half, there's a Keita shot from distance. And then there's a Joe Gomez shot from like, I think maybe 50, 15 yards out. And I just enjoy that, like, one of your, like, number eights is getting involved in the attack, and your right back is heavily involved getting forward to get in the attack right at the end of the half when you're 1 0 up. It, it just felt to me like Liverpool, they can't change their stripes. They are what they are. It's going to be a high line. It's going to be aggressive. And sometimes, even with reserves, they'll be able to pull through and get the result. And sometimes maybe they'll get punished. And I think that's a thing to keep an eye on as they go up against a team who can cause some defensive problems for sure. Joe, um, Benfica def- uh, conceded six goals across these two games. I don't think we expected any other uh, end result than the one we got, but they leave, they left Anfield with their heads held high, didn't they? That was a, a very good attacking performance from it, if not um, defensive leaps, particularly from set pieces as I mentioned. I felt like it was a nice antidote from Atleti style, certainly. Um, <laughs> and they did create a bit of peril um, at Anfield. It, they, they did, it did feel like, oh, they, they might be able to do something here, Joe. Yeah, I'm not sure I felt that way. I know this is kind of the buzzkill thing to say. They still needed a couple more goals and, and the odds of them scoring five against Liverpool after Liverpool had, had managed to score three in this game. So they needed, you know, another couple of goals there, certainly at the end. It never felt to me like that was all that probable, but I will say there's things to, to appreciate here about Benfica. They had a really nice 4-4-1-1, shape that they started it in. That's, that's their shape that they've used a whole bunch of the season. Darwin Nunez is is brilliant to watch, and I really enjoyed watching him in this game. They had a nice attacking pattern where they would use uh, their left-sided players, either Gonchaves or, or Grimaldo, left back uh, and, and left midfielder. They would use those players to pull Joe Gomez out, Liverpool's right back, and then Darwin Nunez, as he loves to do, would run into that left half space and get on the ball in behind. And he, he did that multiple times inside the first 10 15 minutes. That was a great pattern. And then, and then Nunez moves to the left wing at halftime when Yuramchuk comes off the bench. I didn't love that so much. He's not really a winger, so it changes how Benfica had to play. And, and yet, even still, Nunez gets a goal in this game. So he is a brilliant player. It's a bit of a shame for Benfica that it doesn't seem like he'll be around in Portugal for much longer. Mm. But he's a great player. Benfica did some really impressive things, making it past Ajax in the last round. And then almost, I mean, <laughs> I guess sort of causing Liverpool some issues and they did cause some issues. I mean, scoring this many goals against Liverpool in this, in the second leg, especially that's impressive. And I think they have certainly reasons to be proud of what they did. Taylor, I'm giving you 10 TSS dollars. They like Disney dollars or uh, itchy and scratchy dollars, but uh, more fun. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you to bet that 10 uh, TSS dollars on where Dar- Darwin Nunes plays his soccer next season. What do you say? Hmm. That's a tough one. Is he linked with anybody? Yeah, so the Athletic today are saying Newcastle and West Ham are the front runners for him. I personally feel he should be aiming higher than that. Yeah, higher than Newcastle. I a couple of years, Graham. Yeah, Newcastle are obviously a funny one because they're trying to over-accelerate their, their growth. So maybe they get there in a couple of seasons. But nonetheless, they are a team that were fighting relegation this season. So he's not going to be in Europe next season if he goes there. I mean, would he not? 
be a, a, a good, another one of those players that goes to Liverpool and isn't guaranteed to start right away, but sort of gets opportunities and grows into it and then maybe challenges Firmino or maybe starts being one of those main attackers. I could see him doing well. And there, there's a history of clubs sort of looking at the uh, the opponent they've just beaten and poaching that one player that maybe stood out and made the difference and bringing them in. Liverpool, I think, can do that for sure. Uh, but really, I agree with Graham. I think he could go to a number of places and make them better. West Ham do have some uh, lack of options, to put it nicely, up top. So maybe he would, if you're going to go somewhere where you want to play immediately and make some money, maybe West Ham does make a little bit of sense. But I think he probably could aim higher if he so chose. What about Dortmund? Is is he going to be too expensive for Dortmund? I, I think yeah. just profile-wise, he's the closest thing that is out there to Erling Holland in a lot of different ways. Uh, but that does, Graham, you, you think he's going to be yeah. too much? I, I don't think he... Yeah. I just don't I don't see him... He, he's a very specific type of player. He likes to get in behind. He doesn't like to drop in and link play, which is why, at least if Klopp continues to use the personnel he has used, I don't think that, that move is the best fit for Nunez, but Dortmund I like more from a stylistic standpoint, at least. Yo, yeah. I, man, that's a great shout. And it depends on it, what happens with Holland and how much they get for him. But that also feels like a definitive Dortmund move is, oh, they're selling this, like, iconic player. What will they, oh, they've already replaced him. They've already signed another <laughs> player who's very good. That, that feels like a Dortmund move. So maybe that is something they do is once they know the feed that's coming in, they sort of allocated part of it to Benfica and Holland walks out the door. Darwin Nunez walks in. Great shout, Joe. You're, you're not going to like where I think he's going to end up. I think he's going to be an Atleti player by next season. Luis Suarez leaving at the end of the season. Feels like a very Atleti thing to do, going yeah. to put 70 million euros on him. He'd be great. Shame. I think he'd be great for them. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> he probably would, to be fair. They do love They do love to poach talent from Portugal, don't they? Mm. And to overspend on it as well. <laughs> so we shall see. We shall see. Uh, that was Liverpool Benfica. Why don't we talk about Atleti and the fun and games they had oh, with boy. Manchester City in Madrid on Wednesday evening when we come back after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We've saved a sweet treat for dessert in part three. Atletico Madrid nil, Man City nil, Man City going through to the Champions League semifinals, 1-0 on aggregate. This one was a good nil-nil, better than the first game, I would suggest. Uh, Certainly pretty intense. We had some very tasty extra time here, uh, around 13 minutes of extra time at the end of this one with seven bookings therein. Uh, Some fairly classic time-wasting at the end from Man City, a bit scrappy in the tunnel as well. Some controversial incidents arising in extra time and in the tunnel as well. We can perhaps get to that. But Joe, your thoughts on how this one shaped out. I'm sorry, I mentioned this in the in the first leg of this game. I just can't enjoy Atleti when they play like this. It's it just uh, it's it, yeah, bleh, bleh. yeah. And that's that's understandable, Ryan. They play a very distinct way, and everybody knows what that way is at this point. 
I do hope that you enjoyed them a little more in this game than in the first leg because they were a mm-hmm. lot more open in this game than they were in the first leg. They had to be, right? That's the price you pay if you're Atletico Madrid by going down 1-0 in Manchester. So they come out and, and they still, don't get me wrong, defend in a low block. It was a 5-4-1 with Griezmann playing on the right side of midfield and Thomas Lamar playing on the left and Joao Felix up top as a lone number nine. They did that for large periods of this game. But they also, at the beginning of both halves, and then for much longer periods in the second half, as they desperately needed a goal, they pushed. Like, they went out and they pressed Manchester City. And I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think City will will stomp their way past Real Madrid in the semifinals. But I don't think they were very good in this game. They were, they were fine, and they did some good things, but they were not up to their usual standards. I don't think they dealt with the press as well from Atletico Madrid as they, they might in other matches. I don't think they were as calm or comfortable on the ball, and they certainly didn't create a ton of really nice attacking chances. So City, I don't think, were great, but they were still certainly good enough. The quality they have, the counter-pressing ability they have to shut down Atletico Madrid attacks before they even really get going, that was on full display here. And Atletico tried to push for their goal, and they had a couple of chances late on in the second half. Of course, Correa had one. There was there was a, a handful of looks for them, but not really great chances in my mind. City never really looked bothered in this tie, not not just in the second leg, but but across both legs. I think they're they're just that good that even when they're not at their best, Manchester City are still an incredibly difficult team to beat. I, I love how City had some dark arts of their own. Oh yeah. And how they, they oh, didn't yeah, just they did. uh, fade away and they kind of they kind of took Atleti on at their own their own game. And in the yeah. end I guess you could say that they out Atleti Atleti. It felt like by the end Atleti were the ones that were a bit more rattled than 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 City was. Just a little uh, bit. City were. Does this? Yeah. Phil, Graham, does this mean Phil that Foden was loving it? Does this mean that Pep Guardiola now gets to wear or has to wear the all black suit with the all black tie? Like, is that what happens when you out Atleti? Well, Atleti, your manager has to copy <laughs> Simeone's wardrobe. What he, did Simeone he wore a, he, he wore a, an all black uh, turtleneck, so it, it felt Halfway. like he, uh, he kind of <laughs> already dressed the part. Yeah, cool. I enjoyed I enjoyed it. The outfit choices being billed as mortician versus uh, tech genius, I think is what we have <laughs> on the sidelines. Graham, a, qu- a question for you or from whoever wants to answer. So I have seen that argument that like Man City out Atleti Atleti and they frustrated Atleti and they time wasted and plenty of Atleti players have talked about that. Koke said, you know, they 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 went against the game and then they were just time wasting. They were just trying to frustrate. Isn't and it ironic? I, don't you think? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. and I know I know Whoa. there is some truth to that. Like uh, the the Phil Foden one at the end, he definitely gets fouled, but he definitely rolls back onto the pitch because he knows then that that will slow things down way more than if he's just injured on the sideline. But that aside, Grim, were there were there specific things or specific or like little things that kept occurring that made you feel that way? Because I've heard that that narrative. It's just to me, it's like, yeah, I mean, they like slowed it down after they got like viciously fouled. But I don't know if that's necessarily time wasting. Yeah, there, there was a lot of there was a lot of niggly fouls in, in the last kind of uh, 10, 15 minutes from mm. from City, which we know they are capable of. But it just felt like that last 10 minutes, there was barely any football played. True. True. And I think that was a lot of a lot of that was down to City because it wasn't in Atleti's uh, uh, best interest to, to play that way at that point of the match. I, I also think just after the after the Kyle Walker injury, which yeah. by the way that that could be a big blow for yeah. for City's season if that's a, a serious injury. I think Walker is one of their most important players, and he allows them to play a a high line, and and he's one of the best ball recoverers recoverers around. But after he comes off, Nathan Aki comes on, he goes to left back. Cancelo goes to right back and City basically played with a, a, a low block for the last 15 minutes and you had Nathan Ake who 
I think Pep recognises, look, he's not a marauding fullback. He's not going to get up and down the wing in the same way that Walker or Cancelo is. So they, they, they just put him quite deep. And Aki's role in those last 10 minutes were was basically just to get his head on things, to clear things away. And that is very un Manchester City, but that is what the situation demanded was a, a, a bit of an approach like that. And so I, I like that for Manchester City because other English teams have gone into Atleti and almost seen themselves as, as above that. So I remember Liverpool a couple of seasons ago, they got put out by Atletico Madrid. They tried to play their normal game and, and they, and they paid for it. Whereas City re- realized that they had to, they had to play the occasion. They had to play Atleti at their own game. And I thought they were very good at it. They're, yeah. they're a very streetwise team, Man City. I, I, I really think a, a big part of Atleti's preparation for this second leg, uh, because I saw somebody tweet that, like, you have to believe that if you told Diego Simeone that his team would be trailing by one goal, heading into, like, the final half of the second leg at home, he would have been like, yep, we got this. And, and I think, to some extent, their idea was, let's see how soft this team actually is. I think that worked against Manchester United. I think they knocked them around, they made them really frustrated, they got under their skin, and United stopped playing the game that they were trying to play and started playing that game that Atleti wanted to play, and you're not going to beat them at that. And I think they were trying to do the same thing here. It's why uh, Foden gets crushed early on by Felipe. It's why Kevin De Bruyne gets crushed early on by Felipe. Lots of physicality, and the thing that stood out to me in the first 15, anytime there was anything approximating a 50-50 ball, Atleti players were never trying to like like turn and shield the ball or take a touch. They were always putting a foot through it if, if there was a City player there. There was an intensity to it, and I think they wanted to see if City would crumble, if they would sort of wither under that pressure, if they're all just high-paid prima donnas. And there were moments when it felt like they might or they were bending a little bit, but overall, I think it's a testament to the discipline or the belief that Pep Guardiola has instilled, that when he is telling them to do things, they do it, and one of those things he was telling them to do is not overreact. And really, it all culminates for me in that moment with uh, Savage and Phil Foden because Foden gets the the shove as the ball is going out of bounds. I think at the end of the first half that didn't need to happen from Savage. This was after he'd already gotten the forearm to the back of the head that drew blood <laughs> from Felipe in the first half. And instead of instead of retaliating or reacting and getting himself a card or doing something foolish, he gets fouled. And then he rolls back onto the pitch and knows exactly what he's doing. And the angle of Savage realizing what's happening and desperately <laughs> sprinting to try to stop him from rolling back on, it, uh, that has to be in like the, the Phil Foden career highlight montage, just of how trolly it was and how he ended up getting his revenge. Uh, I, I thought that was a great moment, even if it led to yeah. complete chaos and so, Savage uh, pulling pulling hair, shoving people, doing a bunch of things that he probably shouldn't have done. I, I thought... So- Sorry, go on, Graham. I was just going to say, something I've never seen before is Simeone trying to calm his players down, which right. he was doing in, in the last five minutes, which is just uh, leads to my point of Atleti were rattled. Like, City were mm. City had Atleti rattled to the point where Simeone's thinking, Diego Simeone is thinking, okay, we've gone a bit far, lads. This is not really, uh, this is not really helping well, us. And he was trying to calm everyone down. I've never seen that before. I, I think that that's testament to Pep winning the battle over Diego Simeone here. Because if we're, if we're to praise... Simeone for the five five zero formation in the first leg and for doing a, a tactical masterclass, if you want to call it that, then we've got to praise Pep for setting up, particularly in the second half on the low block, what they did here as well, doing exactly what they needed to do. And as you say, Graham, completely rattling 
Atleti at their own game, giving them their own medicine and then spitting it out. And the, the Savage incident and, and incidents, I should say, I think it's a pretty good microcosm of how they they, they were completely rattled. There was about a 90 second period where he, he dragged Foden off the field. I think he shoved Zinchenko, shoved a few other people, tried to headbutt Sterling, or he certainly butted heads with Sterling lightly or otherwise, oh, yeah. pulled uh, Jack Grealish's hair. That He was a man who had just completely lost control. Like, he what lost a work control rate, of everything though. there. What a it's work rate, like, man. All of that in such a short period of time. That is awe-inspiring. It's like three red cards or something he should have got in that little period there. So it's, but it, it's testament to me, Joe, for, for how well Pep pulled off the job. And quite often yeah. we say that Simeone walks away from these kind of two-legged affairs having the upper hand and, you know, well done for the way he handled that. But we've got to give Pep credit for hit for this, I think. Absolutely. I think he nailed a ton of the decisions across both legs. Even in this game, Phil Foden starts as the number nine and Bernardo Silva's on the left. They swap about 25, 30 minutes into this game and Bernardo Silva starts dropping in and pulling the center backs away a little bit or trying to get them to move and they don't really move. He ends up moving into the right half space or the right side of midfield and, and City almost just completely vacate that number nine spot. There were a ton of little decisions. That one didn't directly lead to a, a ton of clear-cut chances, but a ton of little decisions made by Pep Guardiola that I think were extremely logical. Not that he needs me to tell him that or, or anyone that, but... I thought City conducted themselves very well across both legs. They managed both games, I think, very, very well. And for my money, they're the favorite to win this competition at this point. I mean, they I, I really cannot give them enough credit. I know I said this wasn't their best performance, and it wasn't. But they still deserve a, a ton of praise for managing things so well here. Definitely so. All right, so Man City versus Real Madrid is our semifinal, as is Liverpool against Villarreal. England versus Spain in both of them. Uh, Joe Lau is putting his 10 TSS dollars on Man City there. Taylor, how are you feeling about that final four? Uh, yeah, I think I've said, at least since the knockout run, but I think since the group stage, that I felt like it was going to be Man City-Liverpool if they were able to avoid each other. I still feel that way. I think Liverpool-Villarreal has the potential to be a really difficult game for Liverpool, obviously for VRL as well. But that's the one that I think really could go either way. I agree with what Joe said earlier that there's just so many questions about about Real Madrid and there's so much discipline to the approach for Man City. And there's always going to be the question about Pep overthinking or trying to play 12 players or maybe trying to play 10 players and see what happens. But I, I do think Man City will be able to make it to the final. I think Liverpool as well, but it's going to be a tricky fixture against Villarreal who don't really have expectations, but will also have probably all the neutrals pulling for them. So I think that's going to be a super fun uh, matchup to get to watch. Graham, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with Taylor. Even though Man City, Real Madrid is is probably, the, well, definitely the heavyweight tie of, of the semifinals, I actually think in terms of a matchup, that's, that's an easier one for City than Liverpool is for Villarreal because they're going to do what they did uh, against Bayern Munich. And, and hope they can repeat it. I, I just think that on a, on a talent basis, Liverpool are a better team than, than Bayern. Actually, more, a, more than on a talent basis, I think they're a better unit than, than Bayern Munich. So I would expect them to get, get through that, get through that semi-final. And, and I guess this is the point. I, I, uh, have a different opinion to you, Ryan, on Atletico Madrid. I, I love watching Atletico Madrid when, when they play like that. Agreed. However, there is, there is a boundary to that. And I'm 
quite pleased they're not in the semi-finals because I think it, it, wait, by the time you get to the semi-final <laughs> stage, you want uh, free, free-flowing, attack-minded spectacles. Maybe we're not going to get that with Liverpool, Villarreal, but they're they're two very interesting matches. So I've I've had my fix of Atletico Madrid. I enjoyed watching them in the quarterfinals. The the BT commentators here were saying things like, "Nobody wants to see this," and I'm sitting at home going, "I want to see this." I'm putting my hand up. <laughs> uh, this is for me, but I'm glad they're out at this point and we can enjoy four high quality teams doing battle. Indeed. Uh, yeah, I think if Atleti had gotten through, then I think I would have backed Real Madrid to go all the way because I'm, I'm loath to not support Real Madrid at this stage of this particular competition. I think I have to ride the Man City train as well. Their time feels like it's coming here. But who's to know? Who's to know? These games will be coming up very shortly indeed. Exciting times. And we were treated to four very good games at this stage uh, for this week, definitely. And a few last week too, so we can be very grateful for that. I think it was... Um, Jamie Redknapp on the CBS coverage who said like when you get to this stage you always are guaranteed high high quality games wasn't sure about that from the first leg of uh, the Atleti Man City tie but certainly from from this round I was very impressed indeed gents I think we have Champions Leagued it for this podcast so I will say Joe Lowry thank you very much indeed thank you Ryan Graham Ruthven thank you very much bud thank you Ryan Bailey and Taylor Rockwell a pleasure as always sir A pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Indeed, and a pleasure to be in the ears of our listener. We should do so again shortly on this feed. But for now, bye!